Hello, and welcome to Coffee and Code. I'm your host, Ashley Coffee. Coffee and Code is your weekly rundown for the latest top tech news from around the world delivered every Wednesday. On my show, you'll find a mix of the latest tech news from around the world, including emerging tech, privacy, cybersecurity, and more, including interviews with experts, innovators, and everyday tech tips to level up your life. Subscribe to Coffee and Code to be notified when episodes go live. You can also find me on Twitter at AshleyCoffee underscore and on Instagram at AshleyRCoffee89. Thanks for listening and welcome to Coffee and Code. Today, we have a special guest on Coffee and Code. This is someone that I've known for quite some time, actually. We go way back, way back into early days at Apple. Uh, Anthony Doby and I worked together at Apple, and Anthony is a brilliant person um, with, with a fantastic background in, in hospitality, uh, wine, real estate, creativity, you name it part-time model, full-time husband, full-time father. Uh, He does it all and he makes it look easy, but I'm excited to have him on the show today for many reasons. Uh, But today we're going to focus that conversation on the intersection of wine and technology. Uh, It's February, which is Valentine's Day slash month. And why not learn a little bit more about wine and how technology is playing a role in wine. And Anthony is going to grace us with some with some knowledge today. Um, but without further ado, I'd like to introduce Mr. Anthony Doby. Hey, thanks for having me. I, you know, the uh, roles and hats sound a lot more impressive when you list them that way. I, I don't <laughs> find them to be that impressive on average, but I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we do go back a ways. Uh, I was probably coming up on uh, what night? seven years six years seven years something like that um so yeah we worked apple together ashley was a creative while i was a sales slash trainer so i did all the workshops on how to use your iphone and she was doing much more in-depth items at that time but uh yeah we've we've known each other for a bit so thanks for having me never discount the one to many anthony (laughs) you killed that i I always remember you just like completely dominating and for the audience members, one to many is a uh, format of helping. Um, you you are one person and you're helping many people. It's exactly how it sounds. So there would be times where maybe a new iPhone would come out, and part of the flow process is to get people onboarded and to do that efficiently. You know, Anthony would go go there and enthusiastically teach a table of. 10, maybe 15, maybe 20 um, new people how to use their iPhones. So no easy fee. Bravo, sir. Where all the buttons are. It's such a Where all the buttons. Task. But where's my iCloud, Anthony? <laughs> where's my iCloud? Where is the cloud? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thanks for being on the show. Um, would love for you, aside from like what I've described, tell sure. us a little bit more about yourself, um, what you're currently doing. Um, would love to hear more about that. Sure. Yeah. So um, I spent about 10 years in hospitality, um, working from a fry cook with a work permit, um, dealing with things that I should not have been dealing with and 
uh, cooking with and, and you know, sharp edges and, and the like. Uh, and then from there, kind of went to waiting tables from there, eventually got into restaurant management shortly after Apple. Um, and then I kind of found my last pivot in hospitality as a general manager and wine director of a steakhouse in Midtown uh, that you know is Broadway 10. So I spent uh, two and a half years there, kind of found that the hours and schedule weren't as consistent as I'd like them to be for family life. Got two kiddos at home, so I decided to shift. Um, had an old friend reach out and got into residential escrow and title. So now by day, I work in uh, residential escrow, clearing up title problems and helping people with their closings on their purchases and sales of homes. And uh, on the side, I have an LLC known as Ethel um, that I handle wine classes, webinars, scotch bourbon classes and webinars um, from full turnkey solutions for restaurant wine and bar programs to um, how to taste wine to a complete novice um, to shared webinars for friends. So I, I kind of teach that on the side and, and consult with those studying wine and those who just want to learn about wine uh, all the same. So yeah, that's kind of what I've been up to. That's amazing. I <clears throat> I love the pivots there. I think, you know, adaptability is key and I love how you've, you've followed your passions along the way. And wine is such a booming industry. And it's something that I think is could be a lost art, like like you mentioned earlier. Um, but I, I, I would love to hear your take on what do you find most interesting about the intersection of technology and wine, seeing as you are a technologist yourself um, and also find yourself working in the wine industry. So I'd love to see your take or your thoughts on that intersection and maybe how they play into um, wine as we currently view it and consume it today. Yeah, so I think for hundreds of years, right? Wine has been an enigma. Uh, it was a byproduct of accident. It was uh, the fermentation of an unlikely culprit that kind of led to something that people found interesting and intoxicating, not to mention hundreds of years ago, wine, beer, mead, things like this were some of the only safe items to drink, you know, when, when there was not potable water um, in every household and plumbing was not a thing filtration, water plants, things like that were not consistent aspects of, of older society. So wine was one of the few safe things to drink. I mean, um, religious or not, Jesus turned water into wine, right? So the concept of wine has been around from the beginning, but in the beginning of wine, it was accidental more than anything. It was plant it where it may grow, kind of figure it out from there. Um, and it really was an enigma of trying to make good wine was even more difficult. Very few countries and continents had figured it out consistently. So mm -hmm. as that continued to evolve and technology became part of general crop development, right? The first part of the first intersection of, of technology and wine is definitely planting systems and irrigation and among other things. It's probably the first time that agricultural tech started to make a massive difference on wine. Mm -hmm. um, from there, we get further into the technology of it and we find that the actions in the vineyards are a massive part of it, but we have a manpower element, right? So the next intersection of technology is mechanical harvesting um, or, or mechanical planting methods or things, which are still frowned upon in many wineries, depending mm -hmm. on their production ratios, but mm -hmm. um, an important technology intersection nonetheless. And then from there, we get further into the aging and why different oak styles do what they do and the invention of you know, concrete eggs for aging certain wines and 
stainless steel vats for sparkling uh, creation or for storage of whites that don't want oak treatment. Um, and so you have these three and 400 year old traditions in French wine that uh, kind of overarched for a while and, and are still slowly adapting to certain technologies for fear of it overtaking traditional methods. But the, the intersection continues with studying those barrels and how they breathe and what that does to wine. And then further on to, you know, cork development, both synthetic and natural and the prevention of TCA. I mean, technology in wine has a massive interloping history that includes agricultural sciences and chemistry and, uh, you know, irrigation methods. Uh, there's from there to engineering, right? How to create these tanks that hold this pressure that hold uh, fermentation processes or help create them. Um, and then again, back to the chemistry and biology of how it all interacts with the, the soil and the study of enology and all that stuff with UC Davis and their rootstocks. It, it's hard to summarize, right? Wine mm -hmm. and technology has such an illustrious history and, and will continue to do so. Um, what I find most interesting, I guess, between that is how we've begun to isolate the chemistry of wine. I've always been kind of a chemistry fanatic. So the chemistry of each compound in wine and, and where those flavors are pinpointed, um, I find that fascinating. So, you know, the, sure. auto, the autolytic characters of a wine or a champagne, you know, why does it taste bready or yeasty? Um, and from there, understanding that it's literally the yeast autolysis as those yeast cells age and ferment and explode and they rest in the wine, you know, that the, the length of that um, resting on the lees creates a different level of that breadiness, just as an example. So something like a cava, which spends about nine months on the lees, mm -hmm. typically has a less bready or autolytic character to it than a champagne, which tends to spend 12 to 15 months on the lees. So that small snippet helps you understand, okay, I like the way this tastes now to the bottom of where this taste comes from. How do I find another wine that has that same characteristic and kind of isolating the way it's treated and the chemistry of it, I find that probably to be the most fascinating part of the intersection now that we're yeah. starting to understand these compounds and how to create them and how to embolden them by the way we treat wine, by the way we grow it, by the way we age it. I think that's fascinating. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you. There's so much complexity. It's never boring, that's for sure. Um, I'm interested. So as you were speaking, I was thinking of like, wow, another intersection of technology that I can think of is kind of, it's, an, it's on a different level here, but I'm, what, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on those, those wine companies that basically have you fill out a questionnaire yeah, or send in your 23andMe data to customize wine profiles based on, you know, personality matrices or, or DNA whatever you get from 23andMe. But what is what is your take on that? I'm very curious. You know, I think for me, I find it interesting, but I do worry about certain intersections of technology in that, in that aspect. Uh, mm -hmm. I like to think of it much the way that a review system works, right? So we started with this grand understanding of, of wine spectator and how we started to form these profiles around people like James Suckling, or Jancis Robinson, and we started saying, well, you know, if so-and-so gave it a uh, 35, I probably won't like it. If so-and-so gave it a 98, I probably will. And people started kind of taking these scores as gospel, which was an interesting way to use the technology point of, 
a rating scale per se. Mm -hmm. So these people would say, if you like X, Y, and Z, you'll probably like this. And so, you know, when I started early in wine, I found myself aligned primarily with Robert Parker's style of tasting. Um, we liked a lot of the same things. And so I think the same thing of matching up that profile, I think it's fascinating. I think it's a great way to get in, but I also feel like at a certain point, there's not really a manifest destiny to wine. I think too much leanings on personal preference and, and aptitudes and things can kind of steer you into a pocket of, well, I'll only like this medium of wine. Yeah. Um, and I think people begin to reject branching out. You know, I know I like big red dry wine as much as the next guy, but I also, you know, have started to find an affinity for Prosecco and Cava and, mm. and all of these sparkling Rieslings and things that aren't necessarily determined to be uh, manly palate preferences, if you will. But there is that, uh, that archetype of, well, I like scotch and I like bourbon, so I stick to cab. You know what I mean? Um mm -hmm. And then I got into the, you know, sparkly pink Cremant de Loire's and I kind of realized that maybe I messed up <laughs> by not drinking <laughs> enough bubbles early uh, on. And yeah. now I drink way more of that than anything. So I think I do think it's fascinating. Um, I think For it's sure. a cool way to begin to tailor one's profile or to introduce them. Absolutely. Um, but I would warn just in that small token of let things like that get you into it. But from there kind of mark mm -hmm. your own path. Don't, don't, don't pay attention to ratings or, or markings or tastings or specific profiles of specific people and think that you'll always align. I think that individualism um, is one of the more archaic parts of enjoying wine is just enjoying it. Um, yeah, no joke. And I think, you know, the further you get into it, the same when I got into coffee or bourbon or any of those other things that I studied uh, until it wasn't fun anymore, right? Um, <laughs> You get to that point when you study all of that stuff, and I think it all boils down to that good wine is what you enjoy, whether yeah. that's Moscato by Barefoot, or that's Petrus, or that's Opus One, or that's Boda Box. I, I think there's that plethora of options, and I think being guided by something that's not always science or data could be pretty imperative for some people's palate development, for sure. Yeah. How, how about that uh, two buck chuck at hey, Trader Joe's? Ain't nothing wrong with it, right? When I used to <laughs> joke right. about uh, adding Boda Box to the buy the glass menu and charging a bag slapping fee. So, oh, that's awesome. I love it, that. You know? Yeah, I know. I, I feel you there. <laughs> um, I'm interested to hear. So for people, people that are listening, um, I, I want to talk about proper methodologies for tasting wine. Okay. So I, I went to a, I had the privilege of um, studying abroad in Italy um, when I was an undergrad on scholarship um, at, in Arezzo. And we toured a winery called Podere de Pomayo. Okay. It's a green wire, winery in Arezzo. And this was my one, my first experience at a winery. Um, and two, my second, ex my first experience understanding how to properly taste wine. Yeah. I, I believe they were like one was a master sumaye, the other one was a level, there's different levels of sumaye, and I'd love to hear your take on that too, because sure. the audience may not know that. Um, but we he, he guided us through. So I'd love to hear your your take or like what piece of advice would you give to the audience or like what are the five steps of of properly tasting? Um, I don't want to maybe go as far. I know there's a, a branch here oh, yeah. of where you don't you don't want you may not be in an environment to spit out, you know, your your uh, wine. So if you if you're at you know 
um, dinner with your friends and in a post-COVID world where we can do that yeah, again. Yeah. One day. Um, how do you, how do you like tell your friend, hey, taste this wine? Tell me what you think. Talk me through that, Anthony. Yeah. So I like to start wine tasting by condensing it as much okay. as possible because as you study, as you said, there's different levels and I can explain those momentarily, but it can get into a rabbit hole of assessment, right? Of, of different qualities and characteristics you're trying to suss out while tasting. And that's different in a professional evaluation than it is for casual enjoyment. So I think for me, the simplest boil down I've, I've ever heard and I continue to repeat um, is simply see, smell, sip, right? So evaluate color, the way it swirls in your glass. Uh, generally, you want to lean a wine glass. So when I first start off, I like to kind of get the base of the stem, swirl it mm -hmm. around lightly and kind of see what the viscosity looks like. Is it holding on to the glass? Is it um, dropping rather quickly? Is there anything to it? Is there effervescence uh, or bubbles? Is there anything that I see in the wine um, that could be concerning? Is, is there sediment in there? Am I worried about that sediment? Um, is it opaque? Is it clear? Is it heavily mm. colored? Is it lightly? Right. And so that's, as you get further into wine, those, each of those little tiny pieces creates a bigger picture. And so it becomes- What about the legs? Okay. So legs, um, legs indicate body, alcohol, um, or viscosity or all three. And generally, um, it's due to a, an effect called the GM effect or the Gibbs-Marangoni effect. Um, and it, it creates that surface tension and that viscosity, which is usually indicative of those three things or um, individually or together. So again, you know, alcohol content, viscosity, um, and tannic structure it, are kind of those three things you're finding with legs or tears um, as the wine holds onto a glass. So sight, right? First part, um, if you can lean the glass lightly to one side, um, put it up against something that is white or almost white, preferably. Um, and that kind of shows you the rim variation, uh, the core, it's going to show you the color from the center of that small pool of wine, generally about an ounce or two at this stage. Um, and you'll see how that color begins to fade toward the edges. You know, is it dark red fading into an orange red hue? That brick kind of color typically indicates that it's aged um, for a prolonged period of time, whether in the barrel or in the bottle. Um, with white wines, you want to judge by the core because there's not a lot of tint or hue to a white wine. So judging near the rim, uh, you're going to get a pretty clear, almost white color, no matter what it is. Um, so the core of a white wine, the rim of a red wine, will kind of give you those ideas. Um, on a red wine, you have a, sometimes you have a thin, small silver border um, where the wine is essentially clear toward the edges. Some people argue that that is a lack of quality because it, it means that the tannins are not integrated. Uh, the anthocyanins aren't integrated. There's a lot of debate there, but that's something that I was always taught. So you evaluate the color, the effervescence, all of that. That's your sight. Uh, moving on to smell, you're going to swirl it around uh, pretty heavily. You're going to get your nose up in the bowl of that wine glass. Um, you're going to leave your mouth open while breathing through your nose. And what that's going to do is it's going to allow that um, to pull that through your nasal pathway over your tongue. So you essentially can taste some of what you're smelling. Um, also just opening up that olfactory a bit there. So you're going to take that deep breath with your mouth open and you're going to basically dilute that into three different aroma categories. So 
um, primary, secondary, tertiary, pretty standard labeling. So primary is your big, your fruit characteristics. Um, that's going to be your cherries, your blackberries, your strawberries, um, lemongrass or citrus or any of that stuff that comes right off the front. Um, from there, secondary and tertiary are going to be kind of how the wine was treated or aged. So the way I always kind of break it down is primary is what the fruit is. Secondary is how it was treated. Tertiary is how it was aged. Wow. So primary, secondary, tertiary. Secondary is chestnut, chocolate, um, rose petal, lilac, um, any of that floral or non-fruit aromas. And then tertiary is your your savory, your you know, your wood chips, your mushrooms, your forest floor, these kind of things that, that come out with age or lack thereof. So that's obviously smelling. So you've got, you've seen it, you've smelled it um, for your sip. You're going to bring it um, over the front of your tongue. Um, you're going to kind of pull air in at the same time and aerate it just slightly. Um, obviously, while still breathing through your nose, you're going to kind of lightly swish it, not like a mouthwash swish, that's a little too aggressive, but a light swish across the gums, upper uh, part of your mouth, get it near your teeth. That's going to show you how grippy, how jammy, um, how forceful the tannins are. And then once you've done that, um, kind of evaluated your, your flavor profile, um, you swallow that small sip, take a deep breath in um, over your tongue with everything kind of situated there, and that'll kind of bring in the following flavors, the less prominent flavors. You do something very similar with scotch. Um, and bourbon. So if you've ever tasted either of those, it's a little different just because you have to overcome the burn. If I wish not... I had a palate for yeah. scotch and bourbon. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think there's, it's just like wine, right? Uh, and I'll say it again later, I'm sure. But I tell people if they don't, if they hate Pinot and they hate Chardonnay, uh, they just haven't tasted the right one because mm. there's way too much variety in both of those varietals. They're they're, they're grapes that are a byproduct of how they're raised and how they're treated, of course, but there's so many. Uh, I'm glad you said that because those are my two least favorite okay. wines. See, and, and there's, there's so much post-harvest nuance to those two grapes. You know, Chardonnay is a non-aromatic grape, so it, it doesn't have an aroma of its own. Any aroma mm -hmm. on a Chardonnay is something that is created from the treatment of the wine after harvest. Interesting. Uh, we'll dive into that, right? So cool. tasting, you've got it in order there. Um, see, smell, sip. And then you just kind of repeat. You kind of see what comes up the second or third try when your palate becomes more familiar with what you're drinking or as it's had time to open up or oxygen has gotten to it. Um, and that's where the whole decanting debate comes into play. But that's, I think, boil it down as simple as possible there. See it, smell it, sip it. And those are your kind of evaluative checkpoints along the way. Now, as you get into certifications and studying, those checkpoints are more weighted, right? It matters more what you discover in each of those stages. But for the for casual wine enjoyment, I think that's as about as minimal as you can get it um, while still yeah. evaluating the wine. I love that. See, sip, wait. See, wait. See, oh, man. smell, sip. Yep. See, smell. Okay. <laughs> it was almost there. Yeah. Okay. Nice. That's a really good takeaway. The three S's. Uh -huh. That's, you know, I, think I, the I still flip them all the time and I, <laughs> I use it all the time. So yeah, you see it, you smell it, you sip it. 
I love that. That's that's a good that's a good takeaway. Cause I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I, I probably do need to give Chardonnay and Pinot another another uh, chance. You know, I've been that, burned. That could be a 15 hour podcast right there. But <laughs> you know, and you can dilute that though. I think that's part of just the dis- like the discovery of wine technology to the point of what we're here to talk about, right? I mean, terroir, location, geographic, soil makes a Pinot from. New Zealand tastes far different from a New Zealand Chardonnay, far different from an Oregon Pinot, far different from a French Burgundian Pinot, far different from, you know, a, a Chardonnay from Maconnais in the French growing region um, versus a Chardonnay from the Côte de Boone or from the Burgundian Chardonnay or uh, Sonoma Chardonnay. I mean, those those are all those regionalities lend themselves from soil and terroir and climate to an entirely different grape almost. And then you have the different ways that each of those producers ages them, um, whether or not they're using the lees, like we talked about earlier, with that autolytic, buttery, kind of malolactic character that is created from aging on the lees and uh, malolactic fermentation in the wine. I, I just think. I've had great success having that discussion with a lot of people uh, because there's just so much with, with Pinot, you have stem inclusion. So that'll add to the tan and backbone of the wine and gives you a manly quote unquote, manly Pinot Noir. Um, you have the more softer, graceful Pinots that don't have that and don't have oak treatment. Um, and then, like I said, Chardonnays, you have the crisp tart, um, fresh Chardonnays that haven't had any oak treatment or it's neutral and it's stainless all the way to the big butter bombs like Rombauer, you know, that's not what all Chardonnays are like. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I think those two are, they're not underrated by any means. They're two of the most important and most widely grown grapes in the, in the world. But yeah. there's 50 something different treatments that can be given to each one. And I think it's unfair to expect anybody to be able to step into that pool of options and be able to find what they like and how to recreate that, how to let lightning strike twice, right? Like I loved that one Chardonnay at that one bar, that one time, why? And how do I find mm-hmm. another one like it? Yeah, um, there's just no, that's great. so many barriers to entry there to understanding why. I think it's a good idea to keep like a, maybe a little note on your phone whenever you're out and about and you totally. try a wine that you like, um, just journal about it. That's the best way for you, I feel like, to con- be able to reflect on the things that you do like and don't like and be able to really take um, control of that experience. Yeah. And, and I mean, to the technology, you know, of that same concept, um, WSET, which is the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, which is where I do my certifications and studies, um, has a WSET2 app. Um, you download it and it lets you from start to finish, you just add a tasting and you put, okay. you put whether or not you know what you're tasting because maybe you're blind tasting, which is a whole nother art form. Um, but from there, you literally just take a picture of the bottle and you take notes. What did you taste? What did you like about it? What did you not like about it? What's the ABV? What's the producer? What's the region? Um, and so basically you go into my little WSET2 app and there's dozens of wines where I've just taken a picture of the label when I tasted it, what year it was, and my, my, uh, what they call appearance, nose, palate, but literally the same thing, see, smell, sip. Um, You'll so have to send me a link to that um, app so yeah. I can include it in the show notes because yeah. that's fascinating and I want to do it. it's pretty basic, but it, essentially, like you said, take notes, but it's like guided notes. Um, yeah. Because sometimes you sit down and you taste something, you're like, man, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> what is this? Yeah. Floral? 
is this yeah. chocolate? And and on that note, I want uh, I have to admit that I probably was 22 years old before I realized that whenever you're reading the the labels on wine, yeah. that chocolate or cherries or strawberries or oak or tobacco or whatever it may be, those aren't actually ingredients hey, in the wine. Hey, you're not wrong for thinking that. <laughs> I think So talk to us about that. Yeah, so it, it's it's what we have diluted as an olfactory compound, right? Or something that we have identified tastes a certain way. Um, and you sent me a, a Medium article earlier that we were kind of chatting about and, you know, talked about the spectrometry and, and this chemical component analysis and how they figured out what this taste is in a, in a, a subset or a cross-section of a Sauvignon Blanc or whatever they were talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, just as a palate exercise eating and drinking a lot of those things in their own right is massive you know eating dried cranberries eating dried blueberries eating fresh strawberries eating fresh um berries of all sorts uh dark chocolate milk chocolate um you know i think the most pretentious tasting note i've ever given that i was a hundred percent committed to um i had a viognier from minor who is a producer in california of course um, and the tasting note I got on it was the peel of a honey crisp apple. Wow. It, it felt so pretentious to say it, to think it at all those moments leading up to it. Like, oh my God, I look like such an a-hole coming up with this tasting note here. Well, were you right? I, that's it. And that's the thing that you can't really be right or wrong. You can okay. have, you can have these unanimous agreements between sommeliers or, or wine people in general, but you can't really be right or wrong, but that moment of this really does taste like the peel of a Honeycrisp apple and I am going to die on that hill. Uh, I like it. It's crazy. But I think to your point, right, the first thing that ever opened my palate up to life in general like that was I had a natural process coffee from Ethiopia. Um, and to the coffee aficionados out there, a natural process Ethiopian coffee is notorious for having tasting notes of blueberry. Um, because coffee is a fruit first and foremost um, and when it's natural process they let the fruit dry around the bean then they remove the dried husk and they process the bean and they roast it yada yada um, but I had a cup of coffee that tasted like a blueberry muffin oh and at gosh. that time all I had had was you know Starbucks or or your dried k-cup with hazelnut additive or whatever's in there um, and I was like man what do they spray this stuff with right like you think about cinnamon dolce black coffee from a grocery store shelf and they spray it with stuff you know it's chemical additives it's flavor additives um you're not crazy for that not at all like reading the back of a wine bottle and tasting those things in the wine or tasting those things in your coffee it's it's kind of mind-boggling before you can start to really dig into the why you know why does it taste like tobacco is that a good thing (laughs) right is it a good thing that it tastes like tobacco do i want that do i personally want that um, yeah. So that's cool. I think it can be a deterrent to some people. And it is winemaker notes. Um, it is sometimes embellished. It is sometimes romanticized. You mm-hmm. have these coffee producers to that note that are like, oh, this one tastes like grape soda. Right, get out of here. Like it doesn't taste like <laughs> grape soda. I have this guy I used to taste with. I won't name his name. But um, when you tasted it with this guy, okay, it was always, oh, it's sun-kissed peach on an Italian <laughs> hillside. Oh, no. Right? Uh, and that's great. And I love that. And it was ro- it was romanticized and it was uh, rich and engaging. 
But my personal favorite psalms to taste with were like, this is dry, this is good, this is bad, this is strawberry. You know, it was never Mm -hmm. this crazy (laughs) additive, uh, adjective, just massive noun party of what things taste like. Noun party. It's just no BS, right? Like, I tasted with a sommelier Napa, and we asked him what his favorite favorite wine of the evening was, and he could have gone full pretension hound on us because he's a sommelier in Napa. Okay, like he could have been. Well, I think that the free phenolics on this nineteen whatever he could have done that, and we would have been around for that ride. We would have been on board. Uh, he just said, "Nah, man, that ninety six Camus is fire." That's all wow. he gave us. Okay, wow, <laughs> and I think. The more I saw stuff like that from these massive, major players in the game, I just realized that the pretension is all pomp and circumstance. It's not necessary. You can tell me it tastes like a sun-kissed peach, but shoot me straight. What are mm-hmm. we really tasting here? What are we really looking for? You know? I love that. I love that. What a great metaphor for just communication and life yeah. in general. Sometimes it's necessary, okay? It is a, it is yeah. a marketing thing. It is a People want to feel uh, ensconced in this massive... Uh, amazing journey of what's in the bottle but I, I think it just it boils down a little simpler than that uh, yeah I remember watching the Sumaye documentary I think it's called Psalm, Psalm mm-hmm. on Netflix it's been around for a while and that was just so eye-opening to see this world that I mean people had to take you know a year off from full-time work to prepare for this exam it's, yeah it's crazy. It's 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 a financial um, investment. It's it's a life investment. It's just people invest so much into you know, the excellence that is wine. It's it's a crazy world. Would yeah. you still recommend? Would you recommend that documentary for someone that wants to learn more about just the general art of what it is that you do on that front? Uh, you know, I think I think Psalm's great. I think Psalm's a a very blockbusterized version of what it is right it's not as Mm -hmm. it's not nearly as exciting i don't think or as enthralling and i do think so there's two schools of thought this isn't this is probably a good time to talk about uh rankings or levels if you will Mm -hmm. right so there's two general schools of thought there's w set which is the wine and spirits education trust which is generally more geared towards um casual consumers slash retail slash winemakers um is that a global entity or a domestic entity yeah so the w set is is yeah it's worldwide and it used to be combined classes pretty much at all times so every wine level or classification you would study spirits um ever so slightly along with level one so level one was 85 90 percent about wine and then there was 10 percent about spirits and so it would be general vodka production tequila you know cognac things like that um and there's levels to that so w set there's three general levels and then you have w set four and your diploma so i'm working on w set three um which i'll go through the other school of thought and kind of compare that laterally so that a more familiar term might be matched with it but level one is is fairly introductory um it's general wine methods it's the biggest grapes um, it's the biggest regions. W set two gets a little further into that. Um, the specific production of specific regions breaking down France, for example, takes several chapters, um, because of Burgundy, um, the Cote Roti, the Cote de Rhone, all these different areas of France. And of course, Champagne 
being a region in and of itself. Um, so that's two. And then three, where I'm at right now, is where it gets kind of pedantic. It's terroir, it's splicing rootstocks, it's uh, vineyard management, it's vineyard threats, it's technology, oddly enough, uh, irrigation methods, harvest methods. It's very, very lasered in on the wine making and how that pertains to the final product, um, which is when it really stops being helpful on a day-to-day basis, I think, mm-hmm. um, because that thing, those, those are cool things to know. But when I was GMing and wine directing and someone was asking me questions about a wine, rarely ever did they care about the aspect of the vineyard and what kind of rootstocks they were using. And I don't think it ever really got that involved for most people. That granular. Yeah. It, and it's very fascinating. Um, but I find it harder to study than a lot of the other stuff because the other stuff mm. was practical on a daily basis. Um, and this just hasn't been, which is great. It's really pushing that. But the other school of thought is the court of master sommeliers. So the court of master psalms, which is where psalm is centered around is the master sommelier exam. Also, um, laterally, you would compare it to a master of wine in the W set series, a master of wine and a master sommelier are almost identical in the rigor, the time that it takes to study, uh, cost involvement, things like that. Mm-hmm. So in the court of master psalms, it's uh, intro to psalm, which isn't really a certification, but it's considered the first stone. Um, then you have your certified or your CS, and then you have your advanced sommelier. So advanced and W set three are about the same. And then, of course, it dives into WSET4 slash diploma and then Court of Master Psalms being Master Sommelier. Um, so Master Psalm doesn't let you skip levels, which you have to start at intro and work your way up. WSET lets you clip out. Um, Court of Master Psalms is more centered on service, so how to serve wine, um, how to handle that kind of thing. There's different mm-hmm. service aspects of the tests. Um, WSET is less focused on that kind of thing um, as far as its general practicum. So there's advantages to both. I went with WSET because it was just a bit more cost effective and I felt incredibly comfortable with service given my background. So I didn't feel like that needed to be a big part of my studies. Oh yeah. Um, pouring wine was a daily thing. For sure. I got better at it, mind you, but I, I didn't need it as much. So that's kind of how it works. So Psalm centers around the master Psalm exam, um, which is $10,000 or so per Ooh. facet. Um, and there's three facets. Ooh, $30,000. <laughs> yeah. So that, and each of the facets um, can be retaken, um, but you have to pass all three to obviously become a master psalm. They did have a bit of a scandal recently, which wasn't, isn't, it's, it's not worth ignoring because it's a very real part of uh, the movement of society as a whole. So they have some systemic issues that they're cleaning out right now. Um, they reappointed a whole new board. Um, there was some discriminatory and, and other things that they were concerned about. Um, but I, I won't get too far into that. But basically, it was this $10,000 per you know, tasting and evaluation. And there's different facets where you blind taste and your wine knowledge and, and all that. Um, and then, of course, Master of Wine is very similar. Again, in its rigor, its cost, and its intensity. So Psalm's really cool. I think it airs on the pretentious side for obvious reasons. It's the some of the most intensely dedicated wine people you would ever meet. So it's hard to say that um, that's the average <laughs> wine knowledge participant, right? 
Yeah, um, yeah. And of course, the, we know they're hamming it up a little bit. Yeah, it, but it, it is very interesting. And they go through some master psalms and they discuss with some people. And um, and yeah, it, it, it I think it does capture the rigor and the intensity which wine can get. I think it's fascinating. I also don't want it to deter anybody from getting into wine, thinking that they've got to smell fresh cut tennis balls on their first try or that they have to blind test something or that they have to identify a regionality blindly to participate. Right. I don't think it has, it never has to be that serious. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a small subsect. I think there's still only a few hundred master Psalms ever at this point. Um, So it's still very, very much in an intense competition and accolade for sure. Not something that, I personally would pursue given the time and money put into it, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's great. So there's three of those. And then there's, I think Psalm inside the bottle or into the bottle, which is more about wine production um, and the winemaker side of things. And then of course they now have um, Psalm.tv, which is like their streaming service. Oh, nice. Yeah. So you can do like, there's blind tasting interviews, there's educational videos, there's all kinds of stuff on there. So lots of good resources. It sounds like. Oh, they're everywhere. You can yeah. learn about wine for better or worse. You can learn about wine pretty much anywhere. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, maybe this is just my own personal opinion, but I feel like there's maybe like a, a resurgence. So I, I would consider myself a part of the millennial generation. And I think you are too, Anthony. Yeah, um, right. yeah. So the millennial generation. So I think there there is starting to be a, a higher interest in, in wine and in the wine industry. Now the millennial generation is mostly, you know, married, has kids and families and, you know, is moving on from, you know, bar drinks in college to more sophisticated wines. Yeah. Um, so I think this is a really interesting time for us to be alive, one, but two, um, a really interesting time to, to get excited about learning more about wine. And I, I, it's funny that you mentioned that, like, that, that pretentiousness yeah. that sometimes prohibits people from wanting to partake. I have experienced that personally, and I, I, I'm always afraid of how to approach this. So, like, you know, you're at a social event. This is, of course, pre-COVID. And, you know, you... Yeah, yeah, or post, yeah, post COVID, right? or post. Yes, let's think optimistically <laughs> here. Yeah, I like that. You're just you have a you glass of wine, and you're just like you really appreciate this wine, and you want the people around you to to learn and appreciate the wine as well. Not as a pretentious thing, yeah. just as like a a human experience thing. But I always feel so pretentious when I'm like, hey guys, do you want to have like a few tips on how to properly taste your wine? And they're like, who is this girl? Yeah, what? <laughs> So yeah, I think it's it's interesting that I think we're seeing that shift. It's it's definitely gonna take some time for that to to bridge the gap there and for it to be more society. Maybe it's just me not being as confident as I should be and telling people, hey guys, let's learn this. Well, and I think you know, in that in that scenario, if you're a lesser experienced drinker in any form or fashion with any spirit, you know, we talked about spirits yeah. and and coffee or any of that, right? You as a more experienced friend or coworker or anything might say, Hey, I want to teach you something. There's that natural human reflex of, I don't want to, f- I don't want my novice to be discovered, you know, so I'd rather not, you know, yeah. I, I don't, or I don't need to, I don't need you to teach me that. Maybe they really do. Um, I got burned by that mentality really early on in hospitality when I had first taken over the wine program at B10, um, because my background with wine was very 
it was tailored before I got to it. You know, people picked the wines mm. for us. We tasted them sometimes. That was about it, right? And then this was my oh. first chance running a 200 plus bottle wine list. Um, and so I felt like I had to know everything. And I would sit down with these amazing sommeliers and marketing reps and uh, wine winery owners, right? Like Robert Keenan would come in for tastings from time to time. And he owns Keenan Winery out in Napa. Um, and I just felt like I had to know. So he mm. would ask, oh, do you know who so-and-so is? I would just automatically, oh, yeah, totally. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know who that is. And he would say, all right, cool. He would just start skipping right along. How many, I don't know. I, I look back on that uh, regretfully because I really missed out on a lot of information and, and conversation by not opening myself up and being vulnerable about what I didn't know about wine or wine production um, because I felt like I had to know out of the gate. So I missed some really cool stories and some really cool mm. tasting opportunities because I just mm -hmm. wanted to seem like cool. Like, I, I know who that is. I had no yeah. idea who that person was. And I missed wow. out on a 15-minute anecdote about that person because of Well, that's my a good hubris. life lesson learned. Yeah. So I think to your point, though, that's like that. You know, someone turns to you and says, you want to learn this. You never really want to expose yourself. Um, and I think that the millennial generation and beyond, I think, is going to be better about that than some prior mm -hmm. um, because our hubris is shorter-lived in some forms. Um, so I, hopefully that works. I, I, I like your point, though, about yeah, you should definitely do that. Like if you feel like you're in a position to teach and coach in a social gathering or otherwise, do it by all means. I like that. There's, it's fun. Why not? Um, okay. So I'm curious, what are your current favorite wines? So since Valentine's Day is coming up, I'm sure people are probably looking for maybe a good red wine to go with their steaks that they're making at home sure. or a white wine to go with a seafood dish. Um, I'm curious, what are your top wines in each category? Category meaning like red, white, rose, rosé. Sure, sure. So I'll, I'll put this, it's, it's always tough to boil it down because it really does. It is really a tailored, um, wine is a tailored experience, you know, for like, sure. What I like may not be what I recommend for somebody after asking them a few questions about what they like. Um, but narrowing that down to just general styles, I think, is a good way to do some of that stuff. I think for daily for daily drinking, or I guess it kind of depends on what you're pairing it with. But so for just a run-of-the-mill, affordable, I say affordable. So when I say affordable, I say like 20-ish dollars. 2030 mm -hmm. is what I would call affordable. It's not a daily drinker. For me, a daily drinker is around 10. Um, the nicer stuff, I think above 30 for me is like pretty, pretty pricey as far as wine goes. Cause I think 90 to 95% of wine is under $10 a bottle. So, um, what? Yeah. It's crazy. Given 90 the, to 95% of wine. Yeah. It's $10 or less. Well, because you think about all the central California reds, that are produced millions of cases at a time. And you weigh that against the small producer in Napa, like Songwis, that's making 500 cases a year. Um, and they're outproduced, right? They're just, <laughs> there's so much more of that central coast stuff or mass produced champagne or, um, you know, Dom Perignon always sells this um, exclusivity, right? You mm -hmm. can only get Dom for super high price at, at these exclusive locations. And they produce 2 million bottles a year. Um, so some of these 
things that you think are so small and so secluded are mass produced. So yeah, so anyway, it, that's what I would call a daily drinker. But anyway. Is uh, Dom Perignon worth oh, it before we move on? Dom, okay, so yes. Now, between Dom and a few other options, uh, I would probably take a Louis Roder Cristal or a Perrier Jouet Belle Epoque before I would take a Dom Perignon, just because I think the hype has inflated the price just a little bit um, beyond <laughs> what is, and for me, honestly, most wines above 100 aren't worth it on a mm-hmm. general basis because I've had them and there are a few. Um, one of the few wines above that price point that I think is worth it is La Coya. La Coya is an unfiltered, unfined Cabernet. They only produce four um, different ap- like appellations in Napa, four different places. Um, mm-hmm. There's a La Coya produced on Mount Veeder. I think if you get it on a restaurant wine menu, you're probably talking four to five hundred dollars. I think it comes in wholesale at three twenty. That is probably the only wine I've tasted above that price point that if I could ever afford a $300 bottle of wine again, I would get it. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. No questions asked. That speaks volumes. Uh, it does because I do not spend that kind of money on wine at all. I actually get really good at finding the cheap stuff, ironically. Nice. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so for bubbles around that price point, there's a, a sparkling wine made in New Mexico of all places called Gruet. Um, mm. Gilbert Gruet. He was a French man looking for a domain to purchase and develop in uh, the U.S. Um, In the 70s, he settled and believed that New Mexico was the place to make wine. Um, While everyone else was settling into Sonoma and Napa, uh, he chose New Mexico. So his family still makes it. What they make out in New Mexico, it's called a method champenois. Essentially, method champenois or, or method traditional is the method of champagne made anywhere outside of champagne um Mm -hmm. any wine not made in champagne france cannot legally be called champagne there Mm -hmm. are a few mass producers that have a technicality in there um or bell or or loophole yes where they were already using the word um before it became a rule france got really mad about that and so they argued about it in the european union trade agreements and basically said okay, well, since you've been using it for this long, you can call it California Champagne, but you can't just use Champagne. So Gruet, Method of Champenois, if you see Method Champenois or Method Traditional on a sparkling bottle, um, it means that they make it how they make it in Champagne, which involves the secondary fermentation in the bottle um, rather than in giant tanks, which which is called the Charmat Method. Um, and that's how they mass produce things like Prosecco. So Gruet, okay. great bubbles option um, in that 20 to $30 price range. Um, you're basically buying French grade champagne from a dude who grows it in New Mexico, which is crazy, but it, it works. That is, yeah. It works. Um, for steak, like I'll just get, for steak, I can't get into specific brands. I think it's too vast, but you mentioned, you know, a nice steak at home, Valentine's Day, that kind of thing, right? Um, pro tip from a steakhouse sommelier, the best type of red to pair with a well-marbled steak Everybody argues if it's Cab Franc or Cab Sauve or Bordeaux or Meritage. It's none of those things. Okay. Mm. It's it's Syrah or okay. a Syrah blend, hands down. Mm. Okay. So, okay. yeah. So, if you want to get fancy with it, a Cote Roti or a Cote de Rhone or something from France, great. Um, or Shiraz from the Barossa Valley in Australia is great. Um, but Syrah, oh, anything with Syrah, Syrah Grenache blends, whether it's from Spain. Um, or France or anywhere, the Syrah has this protein called rotundone, which is also found in black pepper. And 
that plus the acidity plus the tannic structure Syrah just has this way of cutting through that marbling without being aggressive it doesn't have its own profile it's not beating its own chest um, which a lot of Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc can get kind of jammy kind of fruity um, they want to be the star of the show so Syrah or a Syrah blend with your well-marbled ribeye 100% the way to go just that sounds wonderful yeah. we we usually do oh man I'm a, I'm a sucker for earthquake yeah earthquake wines one the label is amazing but two it's actually delicious it's kind of spicy that's a good one um i like to do layer cake pinot noir okay delicious um yeah, 19 times that's pretty good too really mm-hmm. oh, okay i i I'm, I'm a sucker for that yeah uh so outside of that i would say just kind of like Let's say what, let's do one more bubble and we'll call that right. One more bubble. I think we recently discovered this one is called Paul Clement and it's a P-O-L and then C-L-E-M-E-N-T. Um, it's a Brut Rosé. It's made okay. in France, um, but it's a Cremant, which basically means it's a non-champagne style bubble. Um, mm-hmm. It's still a French thing. But the guy who, in, who created Paul Clement is, he was an enologist, so he has a uh, he had a science degree in wine study, basically, or winemaking. Um, and he's also an engineer, and he invented the Charmat method, which is basically secondary fermentation in a tank rather than in the bottle itself, um, mm-hmm. which makes it more cost-effective. There's no yeasty, autolytic quality that you get in champagnes or cavas. Um, it's cleaner, it's crisper. The, bo- the bubbles are a little softer because it's only about two or three atmospheres of pressure in the bottle versus uh, champagne and cava, which are five to seven. Um so softer bubbles, light strawberry, kind of honeydew, melon quality to it. Um, great with like a charcuterie, a snack board, uh, that kind of thing. So yeah, I'd say those those three have been kind of my my go-tos. I like to open people's eyes to Syrah with well-marbled steak. Um, and then of course, Gruet, the crazy guy in New Mexico with the fun story. Uh, Paul Clement, the inventor of Charmant Method. Nice. Those are great suggestions. Thank you so much. Of have a feeling they will come in handy for people <laughs> as we create our Pinterest-style charcuterie boards. Yep. We eat entirely too much charcuterie in our house. Yeah, there, there was a couple – we had a weekend streak, Sean, my husband, and I. Yeah. We had a couple of streaks where we would uh, – in December. So we here's the thing. We don't really drink that often. We love classes of wine. We love sure. wine. Um, but, like, we just started last year dubbing December Wine Month. Okay. And I swear, we don't, we don't really drink, you know, throughout the year. And then December, I swear, we drink like 10 bottles of wine. It was amazing. Um. <laughs> At least you control yourself. I think for me, in that regard, December never ends. And that- Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's been, it's been a fun journey, like um, learning a little bit more about wine. I've been loving the 19 Crimes. One, it's delicious. But two, I can't get enough of their AR yeah. labels, um, which are fun and different. And, you know, it's another way to engage with your, your wine. Sure. I think it's cool. Yeah. Um, well, we've had a, quite the conversation today. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming on. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground here and I feel like you've given the audience a lot of really good takeaways of, um, I love your quote of like, there's no manifest destiny for wine. That, yeah. I think that was really brilliant. And uh, your three three tips for um, tasting, which are see, wait, smell, see or smell? See first, smell? yeah. C, C, smell, sip. There you go. 
see a small snip. And then um, you recommended an app um, for keeping track of your wine, which I will link in the show notes for everyone. Um, yeah, and some documentaries that are that are available for people to learn more. So a lot of great resources here. Um, but Anthony, before we part, where can we find, where can the audience find you? Yeah, so I have a little Instagram on the side. It's just Som Doby, um, S-O-M-M underscore my last name, Doby, D-O-B-E-Y, um, where I post tasting notes, fun anecdotes, stories, pictures from our trip to Napa or just from various wineries. Um, I have a an LLC, like I said, it's ethyl, so named after ethyl alcohol, which is the alcohol component of all spirits and wines. Um, I've got a website, so it's ethyl.squarespace.com, um, where I have a contact form, uh, online webinar class schedule, things like that. I've got a couple webinars um, and wine tasting classes coming up on the 12th and the 13th um, that we just teach over Zoom. I've got a custom tasting sheet. Uh, for you to keep track of your tasting notes in each of those classes. But yeah, I just, I host those things for corporate functions, for one-on-ones, for consulting, for just general information. Occasionally partner with a couple charcuterie uh, companies and boards around the city just for funsies. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Very cool. That I feel like that is such a great business idea. I myself know Several people that would be interested in this, whether it's a girls' night or a leadership retreat or you name it. I mean, you can't go wrong with a virtual wine tasting. Yeah, stay party, safe, right? Stay sipping. Safe, yeah, in the comfort of our own home. Like today, um, we're in Oklahoma and the roads are pretty icy. I did not get out of my house today, and maybe I could have booked uh, Anthony to give me a wine tasting. Today. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Anthony, this has been wonderful. Thank you so, so much for coming on. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation and uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing what your next big adventure is within wine. Same to you with, uh, with technology. I think you've got a better handle on that than I do on wine. So (laughs) the best of both worlds, right? (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Before I leave you today, I would like to give a special thank you to Just Good Coffee Company, the official coffee partner of Coffee and Code. Just Good Coffee offers a carefully crafted selection of coffee from some of the most revered coffee producing regions around the world. Their commitment to offering exceptionally good experiences extends beyond just the products themselves, but extends well into the community, which is awesome. Their mission is simple to offer good coffee and coffee for good. From cup to community, that is the sole purpose of Just Good Coffee. Be sure to check out their newest culture collection. These blends are carefully crafted and roasted to perfection, each with origins from within the great continent of Africa. You can find them at justgoodcoffee.co. I am personally a huge fan of this coffee. It tastes so good. Um, I drink it while I'm recording this and um, nothing but good things to say about this coffee company. Shout out to my friend Ray. Thank you so much and thank you all for listening and be sure to subscribe to be notified when new episodes of Coffee and Code go live. (laughs) 